And Lord, we open up our hearts now to your word. And I need your help, Lord, wisdom and just your work in my heart and strength. And Lord, we need your help. It's so easy to have our minds wander and to be distracted. And I pray for the outpouring of your grace upon us now as we open up your scriptures. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. You're wondering why that's up there. In 2007, how long has that been up there? Anyway, okay. In 2007, Brad Pitt uh, was interviewed uh, for Parade Magazine. There's an article there. Fascinating article. What he said was that he'd been raised as a conservative Southern Baptist. And he said that for a while, that made sense to him. Here's the first part of the quote. He says, religion works. I know there's comfort there, a crash pad. It's something to explain the world and tell you there's something bigger than you. And and it's going to be all right in the end. It works because it's comforting. I grew up believing in it. And it worked for me in whatever my little personal high school crisis was. But it didn't last for me. He says it didn't last for him. Now why not? What happened? Here's what he goes on to say. I didn't understand this idea of a God who says, you have to acknowledge me. You have to say that I'm the best. And then I'll give you eternal happiness. If you won't, and you don't get it. It seemed to be about ego. I can't see God operating from ego. So it made no sense to me. What do you think about that? Is Brad Pitt right? Does God call us to acknowledge him as the greatest? And if so, is it because of ego? That's the question I want us to, to ponder. If somebody at your workplace shared these same sentiments with you over lunch this next week, how would you respond? I want us to wrestle with that this morning. And if this is some of the questions and doubts and wonderments that you've had, I'm hoping that we can open up the scriptures and see how they're addressed. And Isaiah, Old Testament prophet who wrote around 700 BC in chapter 43 of his book, deals with this question. So let's turn there. Isaiah chapter 43. If you need a Bible, like we always say, I'd like you to raise your hand just to welcome you. We want to bring you a Bible so you can look along with us. We're going to be going through this chapter. Isaiah chapter 43. It's on page 603 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Let's keep your hand up. Be bold. I want you to all have a Bible. Page 603. One more up here. Very good. There you go. Now before we drill into the question about why God does what he does, is God an egotist, that thing. I just want to give you an overview of this chapter so that you can see the broader context of these verses that we're going to be looking at. To understand Isaiah 43, you've got to start with where Rick left us off last Sunday. Rick Park preached last Sunday, and the last section of Isaiah 42, God is talking about how Israel has repeatedly sinned against God, Israel has sinned against God, and as a result, God has brought punishment upon them. Babylon has conquered them and taken them into exile in Babylon. That's where we're left at the end of chapter 42. But then, starting in verse 1, God says, now that judgment's going to stop, 
And he's going to do something astonishing. Keep in mind, this is what he's saying to sinful Israel. Isaiah 43, verse 1. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Here's what he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Just a comment on that. That's referring, I think, to how God conquered sinful Egypt so that Israel could be freed from slavery there. Scholars aren't so sure what the reference to Cush and Seba is, but that's what Egypt probably refers to. Keep going in verse 4. This is amazing. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Again, reference to freeing them from Egypt. Verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. Israel, because of God's punishment, had been scattered to the nations. Here God says he's going to gather them back. Verse 6, I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So verses 1 through 7, even though Israel has sinned, end of chapter 42, and has faced God's punishment, now things are going to change. Amazing favor and blessings are going to be poured out upon sinful Israel. Then in verses 8 through 13, I won't read this all, but what goes on here is God says through Isaiah that Israel can be absolutely certain that he'll do what he's promised because every time God has made a promise... Every time God has prophesied something he's going to do, every single time, God has done it. Verse 12, as an example, God says, I declared prophecies and promises and saved, fulfilled prophecies, promises, and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you, no other God did this, and you are my witnesses to my faithfulness, declares the Lord, and I am God. That's verses 8 through 13. Then in verses 14 through 21, God again describes these amazing, this lavish outpouring of mercy that God's going to bring upon Israel. I would encourage you to read those verses on your own. Let me just point you to verse 19. God says, Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the deserts. Miraculous blessings God's going to pour upon Israel. And then in verses 22 through 28, Isaiah says that God's going to do this for Israel even though Israel has repeatedly sinned against him. That is, she did not deserve this in any way. Look at verses 22 through 24. Yet you did not call upon me, O Jacob, 
but you've been weary of me, O Israel. You've not brought me your sheep for burnt offerings or honored me with your sacrifices. I've not burdened you with offerings or wearied you with frankincense. You've not bought me sweet cane with money or satisfied me with the fat of your sacrifices, but you've burdened me with your sins. You've wearied me with your iniquities. So what Isaiah wants the reader at this point to be pondering is why if Israel has sinned so flagrantly and frequently and knowingly and consciously against God, why would God then turn and pour out such lavish mercy upon her? Why? I mean, think about Israel's situation. Israel's no worse than any other nation, okay? But the reality is that God's chosen people again and again and again sinned against God, turned from him to worship false idols, neglected the poor in their midst, burned their babies to this God named Moloch. Again and again and again, Israel sinned against God. So much so that what they deserved from God was what? Punishments. Like the heavens were crying out, punish them. And what did God do? He says, I'm going to love you Count you as precious, restore you to the promised land, and the implications of that, which are spelled out in other passages. I'm going to bring my power upon you and change your heart. I'm going to give you repentance. I'm going to give you faith. I'm going to turn your heart back to me. You will turn to me. And as you turn back to me, I will forgive you for all of your sins. Lavish blessing poured out upon Israel. And Isaiah wants us to ask, why? But he doesn't just want us to ask that for Israel. I think he would be happy if this morning we asked that for ourselves. Because we're just like Israel. Okay? We are just like Israel. If you know and love Jesus Christ this morning, here's what God has done for you. If you know and love Jesus Christ, here's what he's done. You, me, all of us, we have repeatedly sinned against God. Knowingly, persistently just turned our backs. Some of you sinned against God in socially unacceptable ways. The rest sinned against God in socially acceptable ways. But whether it's socially unacceptable or socially acceptable, it's sin against God. And we've all sinned against God persistently. So much so that what I deserved and what you deserved was eternal punishment from God. So what did God do? He set his affection upon you. Undeserving, unworthy, He set his affection upon you and chose to love you and sent his son to die on the cross to pay for your sins. And at some point in history, just like what Paul was praying about in his own life, because of what Jesus did, God brought his power upon you and changed your heart, subdued your rebellious will, gave you repentance and faith, and you turned and you put your trust in Jesus, and God forgave all your sins because of what Jesus did. And God poured his Holy Spirit out upon you so you could know him personally, experientially, by the Holy Spirit, And he went to work and started a moral renovation project in you. He started to change you. And you become more and more righteous. And that that change will not stop until glory when you'll be completely transformed. And in the meantime, he's guiding you, loving you, providing for you. He's strengthening you, comforting you, looking out for you, satisfying you with his presence. And then at the end, he'll raise you from the dead to be with him forever. And we should all ask the question, why? 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 If what we deserve is judgment, why would God 
show lavish mercy to Israel as described in Isaiah 43 and to us? Why? That's the question. And Isaiah answers that here by answering two questions. They both together will will answer that question. The first question he answers is, why does God create us? Why from the very beginning did God create us? And look at what he says in verses 6 and 7. Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Here's what he says. I will say to the north, give up. And to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Did you catch that line? Whom I created for my glory. So here Isaiah explains why God created Israel. And it's not just why God created Israel. The implication here and through the rest of the scriptures, this is the reason why God created Gentiles as well. Jews, Gentiles, all of humanity, this is why God created you. He created you for his glory. Your reason for being on planet earth is to display his glory. God said, I'm going to make one of you. And my purpose in making you, so you'll display my glory. I'm going to make you, so you'll display my glory. You, so you'll display my glory. Humanity, so that humanity will display my glory. That's God's purpose. And that's not just why God created, as you read through the scriptures. That's why God does everything that he does. I just gave you a smattering of some scriptures there. We won't read them all. You can look them up on your own. For example, why did God bring Israel out of Egypt? Ezekiel 20, verses 5 through 9, to display his glory. Why did God deliver Israel at the Red Sea? Psalm 106, to display his glory. Why didn't God punish Israel in the wilderness when she deserved it? Ezekiel 20, 21 and 22, to display his glory. Why did God bring Israel into the promised land, give her the promised land? 2 Samuel 7, 23, why? To display his glory. Are you catching on? Okay. Why did God work miracles through Jesus? John 2.11, to display his glory. And why did God send Jesus to the cross? John 12, to display his glory. So everything that God does from start to finish is to display his glory. God's burning passion, which fuels creation, everything he's done through Israel, everything he's done through history, is to display his glory. God says, I want my glory displayed. So, maybe Brad Pitt was right. Was he? Was God's purpose to display his glory, is the phrase that I've used here from Isaiah? Yeah, that is God's purpose. But Brad Pitt didn't like that about God. Didn't like the fact that God wanted everyone to see his greatness. So how do we answer what Brad Pitt says? People at your workplace are thinking the same thing. People in your neighborhood are thinking the same thing. You might be wondering the same thing. How would we answer that? Here's how I would answer this. I would explain that no one likes people who want to display their own glory. How many of you saw that uh, American Idol couple weeks ago, the, 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 the girl contestant got up there and her comments before she sang, she says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do 
what everybody else has only talked about doing. That was the last performance she did, you know, okay? <laughs> but see, we don't like people who want to demonstrate their glory. Or, you know, you were all raised, if your parents, you know, read you Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, right? The Wicked Witch, mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And your parents wanted you not to like her, right? Because we don't like people who want to display their own glory because it's for themselves that they want to display their own glory. That's why we don't like it. It's for themselves. But the reason God's passionate about displaying his glory is for us. He does this for us. Now, why would I say that? Think about it like this. What stirs your heart the most? Okay, we've got these fantastic pictures up here, okay? What's, what stirs your heart the most? Watching someone surf like a, a six-inch wave over on the right? Or watching someone surf this, I don't know, Dave Clark, how big is that one? Like 50, 60-foot monster wave. I asked my wife about this. She said she wasn't sure that everybody would have their heart stirred by these pictures. <laughs> Your heart is stirred, right? You've got to understand this, okay? Your heart is all stirred by the bigger wave, right? It's like, yes, right? Thank you, Heidi, okay. Others of you, you know, here's the point. Your heart is wired to find its highest joys in beholding greatness. And the greatness of a six-inch wave is nothing compared to the greatness of a 50-foot monster. You'll just say, whoa. When you see that, so your heart is wired. You're, you're made up so that your highest pleasures and joys and fulfillment comes from beholding greatness. That's why unless it's your child playing Little League Baseball, none of you line up to watch all the Little League Baseballs in your, you know, games in your neighborhood. You'll go to the Giants, but unless it's your child, you're not going to mess with the Little League team, right? Okay? Because you want to watch greatness. We're wired to find our highest joys in beholding greatness. So here's the question. What's the greatest greatness? What is the greatest greatness? If you're wired, you're going to want to know this. Because if you're wired to find your highest joys in beholding greatness, then you're going to want to find the greatest greatness and behold it. Right? So what's the greatest greatness? Can anything even come close to comparing with God? Think about power. Okay. God spoke a word and there was a universe that existed, that hadn't existed before. A massive universe. What is it? Millions of galaxies. I forget all the stats, but it's just so huge that our solar system is like tiny. And the earth is tinier. And you, tiny. And God just said, let it be. Boom. Power. Think about authority. That massive universe, God rules every atom, everything in it with his authority. Authority. Think about God's knowledge. Try to think of how to describe it. God is always conscious of everything that's always been, that is, that will be, 
and that could be all the time. Bandwidth, okay, massive, all right? Think about wisdom. Just one random example of God's wisdom, like, for example, in how he created Jan's fourth grade class this last week. They dissected the cow's digestive system, okay? And between the cow's mouth and the stomach, at the end of the esophagus, there's this little pouch that collects rocks and nails, things that the cow just, you know, cows aren't that smart, you know, they're eating, and it collects them and it enfolds them in tissue for the rest of their life so that they don't go into their stomach and hurt them, Okay? That's just one of millions of examples of the amazing wisdom of God in creation. He's displayed through creation. Or just think of God's being, a little philosophical here, but everything else has been created. Only God has always been. Everything else depends upon God for its existence. God is the only reality, the only being, the only thing that is completely self-existent. Okay? So we're asking the question, what's the greatest greatness? And God is infinitely greater than anything else. Now put this all together. If your highest joy is in beholding the greatest greatness... And if the greatest greatness is God, God in all of his glory, what's the most loving thing God could do for you? The most loving thing God could do is do everything to display his glory. Because the more he displays his glory, the more joy you will have. So the reason why it's right and loving for God to do everything to display his glory, and it's not right or loving for the wicked witch to be all mirror, mirror on the wall. The reason it's right and loving for God to do that is because he does this for you so that you can have the joy of beholding his glory. So Isaiah is asking the question, why does God create? And it's amazing news that the reason God creates and does everything that he does is to behold his glory. To display, I'm sorry, not to behold, to display his glory. God does everything that he does to display who he is. Because that's your highest joy, is seeing who he is. Okay, now let's do a little deeper. One more question that Isaiah addresses here. We're talking about God's purpose. Why does God do what he does? Is Brad Pitt right? Second question Isaiah helps us think through is, why does God forgive us then? God does everything to display his glory, but what about forgiveness? Why does God forgive us? And look at what Isaiah says in chapter 43, verse 25. This is God speaking through Isaiah. God says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. For my own sake. And I will not remember your sins. God blots out our transgressions. This is amazing, amazing news. You know you have transgressions, right? You know you have transgressions, right? Nobody knows your transgressions like you do. Nobody knows mine like me. I have transgressions. 
God blots out our transgressions. God's made a way for them to be forgiven. Israel didn't see that as clearly as we do. They saw the animal sacrifices. They could read Isaiah 53, which we're coming to a little ways down the road. But now that Jesus has come, we understand that in Jesus, God punished my sins, all of them, past, present, and future. That's why God can then look at my book and blot out all of my transgressions, blot them out, 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 blot them out. The book's empty. He blots out all of our transgressions. He does not remember our sins. And why does God do that? Why does God do that? I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 12. Real quick, back to the right. I want you to see this isn't just one random passage. 1 John 2, 12. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. 1 John 2, 12. And that same idea is throughout the scriptures. God blots out our transgressions for his own sake. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't care about us. All through Isaiah 43, I love you. You're precious to me. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to restore you. I'm going to bring you back to myself. So God cares about Israel. He cares about us. When he says, for my sake, what he means is, for the sake of displaying my glory. I'm forgiving your sins. I'm blotting out all of your sins because that will display my glory. It's for the sake of displaying my greatness that I'm going to be forgiving your sins. What you have to understand um, is that the highest display of God's glory is, is his mercy. Psalm 138, it's 5 and 6, says, Great is the glory of the Lord. So the topic is, how great God's glory is. Great is the glory of the Lord. And then, then the psalmist tells us why. Because even though the Lord is exalted, yet he regards the lowly. So what is the greatness of God's glory? It's the fact that the exalted one regards the lowly ones. The worthy one regards the unworthy ones. The, the righteous, holy, pure one regards the undeserving ones. It's his mercy. Great is the glory of the Lord because God is merciful. God's mercy is the height of his glory. I mean, just think about it. You can be in awe of God's power, right? Like, whoa, God's power. I mean, it's awesome. And it is awesome. And you can, you can behold God's justice and say, it's, it's right that God is just. He's going to cast Satan and all of his demons into hell forever. That's right. So you feel you know, awe at God's power and this sense of rightness about God's justice. But think of how you feel when you behold God's Mercy. And th- again, think of this. God created you. Just think about it in terms of your own life, the mercy he's shown to you. Make this real personal. God created you. You understand that, right? That's why you're here. God chose to make you. He gave you life. Oh, what an amazing gift. He, he chose to give you life. You had nothing to do with it. He, free gift. He gave you a body. He gave you friends. He gave you abilities. He gave you a purpose. He gave you himself to know and to be satisfied in. He gave you 
commands how to live your life, the best way to live your life. He's promised to provide for you and to guide for you and to strengthen you and to care for you and to do everything that you need. So this is who God has been to you and you and me, we've all turned our backs against God and refused and just said no. Turned our backs on him again and again and again. So much so that what I deserve and what you deserve in who we are in ourselves before we're saved, what we deserve is to be judged forever by God. So God looks down upon us. That's what we deserve. And then God does something unbelievable. He sends his own son to the earth and he takes your sin and he puts it upon his son Jesus and he crushes Jesus. As Jesus is in agony, shrieking on the cross in pain, it's the father punishing him for your sin. He wanted to come. Jesus wanted to come. He loves us. The Father wanted him to come. That's what was happening. The Father took your sin, what you deserved, and poured it upon his blameless, perfect, holy God-man son, and he crushed him on the cross so that you could be forgiven. And then he changed your heart, gave you repentance and faith, made you into a new creature, clothed you with his righteousness, gave you the gift of the Holy Spirit, adopted you into his family. He's now your father. And you've you've just received, 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 received. You, undeserving you, received, received, received mercy after mercy after mercy. So God's power is like awesome. And God's justice is like, that's right. But God's mercy is the height of his glory. The highest display of God's glory. What leaves us just speechless is what he's done for us through the cross. What he's done for us in Christ. So here's what Isaiah is saying. Why does God create Israel, create you, and do everything that he does? It's to display his glory, which is the best news in the world to you because you are wired to find your highest joys in beholding glory. And so God does everything he does to say, here's who I am. Look at who I am. I'm displaying and demonstrating who I am. And then Isaiah raises the question, why does God forgive sins? And the answer is, is to display his glory. That is the the motive power, that the motivation for God to forgive sins does not need to be found in you. It's found in him. Do you see what good news that is? What does who we are in itself, apart from God's mercy, motivate God to do? Punish us. Our sinfulness in God's justice, that's what we would call God to do in who we are. So where's the the reason going to come from for why God's going to show mercy? There's no reason in us. You've got to get this clear. There's nothing in us that deserves it, which is bad news for the proud, but awesome news for those who know better than to be proud. Right? Because the fact that there's, there doesn't need to be any reason in you to receive God's mercy. All the reasons are in God himself. The, the worth that moves God to save with such lavish mercy is in God. It doesn't need to be in you. Because it's not in you. It's in God which opens the door. There's not a person here 
who can't be saved through Jesus Christ, no matter what you've done. No matter what you've done. The door is open wide because free mercy is available because God does it to display His glory. The reason does not need to be found in you. It's in Him. You just come by faith. You put your trust in Jesus Christ and He saves you. Now, just ponder what this means. This is an amazing thing. You, me, we're sinful people. And the God who's created the universe, who rules the universe, has, just get this, as his highest passion to display his glory through showing mercy to undeserving people. The God who's created everything and who rules everything has as his highest passion to display his glory through saving sinful people. Now, is that good news for sinful people? The God who's there, what fuels him, what invigorates him, what impassions him is showing his glory through lavishing mercy on undeserving people like me and like you. Okay, now what does this mean for us? Dozens of things. Let me just pick four that I feel like God wanted us to especially ponder here. First of all, any, any questions before we look at the four implications? Just... So let me just rephrase the question. So God created us, so we're wired to find our greatest joy in beholding greatness. My answer, I guess, would be that given, let's play this out, given an infinitely glorious being, the highest, the, the, the right highest joy for any of his creatures would be that which is infinitely glorious, which is him. That's the right way to create us. I and mean, if he created you to find your highest joy in, like, something else, that would be wrong for God to do, right? Because there would be a breakdown between what is in reality the highest glory and what you're finding your highest joy in. I'm just kind of trying to explore this question, okay? Are you, are you tracking with me? Somebody said that was good. Okay, I'll take that. All right. All right. So, I don't think so. <laughs> Anybody else do a better job with that one or can maybe phrase it more clearly? Do you understand the question? Um, if God is infinitely glorious, which he is, this is, he, he, I mean, I don't want to sound sacrilegious, but this is who he finds himself to be. Here he is, infinitely glorious. For him to create beings who find their highest joy in anything other than that which is infinitely glorious wouldn't be right. That would be, that would be a, a, an unrighteous thing for God to do. So that's righteous for him to do. So then his pursuing his own glory is the most loving thing to do for those he's created in the most righteous way. Something like that. I think that's where the answer has got to lie, somewhere in there. Somebody else can make it more clear, but... Right. Yeah. And, and that's the best joy for you. And that's what displays his glory the most. God's highest passion matches your highest joy. That's amazing. So many people think, well, the reason you become a follower of Jesus is you decide, well, you're not going to pursue your highest joy anymore. That's bad. It's not what Jesus ever says. It's not what God ever says. Becoming a follower of Jesus means you're waking up to what your highest joy is. You realize you've been settling for too little joy, satisfaction, wonderment, and you're going to set your heart on what is infinitely satisfying, and that is himself. Well, I, I, would, I would try to... First of all, the common base between me and Brad Pitt is we, we both do not like people who pursue their own glory for themselves. We're in sync with that. 
what he needs to understand, I mean, if I was, and I want to speak this with all due respect, is that the reason God pursues his glory in everything he does is because it's the best thing for us. It's the most joyful thing for us is to see God. I mean, God, for eternity, we're going to have a panorama of just this glory of God displayed. And so I would just try to help him think through, yes, we don't like it because for people who do it for themselves, but what if God does this for us? Would you like it? Right? So I would try to build as much common base as we can, right? And then show the difference and try to build from that. And just pray, 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 God, give me wisdom, you know? Okay, let's, let's move to these last four implications just because I want to make sure we get these. What, what does this mean for us? First of all, be humbled. This is, this is to those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ. I want to just urge you to, to see what this means. And that is the reason that God saved you was not for any good in you. Even your faith was a gift, a free gift from him purchased through the cross. So you've got to understand the only way, remember Luke uh, 18, I think it was, 13 and 14. The man who prays, God be merciful to me, a sinner, is the one who went to his house justified. We've got to understand that, that to come to Christ, to come to salvation, you need to remove any, any, any thoughts of self-righteousness, any thoughts of being worthy of it, any thoughts of deserving it, the only way to be saved is to understand it's free mercy. Now, you may have understood that when you were first saved, but if you're anything like me, don't you find that the little little snippets of self-righteousness keep sneaking back in and little prideful things keep sneaking back in? And I start to build up my reasons why, like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, I'm saved, you know. Bring it on, right? See, it's so deadly and so dangerous. And so I hope that you see through this that God saved you 100% in spite of what you are. Which means it is all mercy. So I just plead with you, church, strip away any thoughts of what you are worthy of, of how he ought to save you, of how you've, you've brought something to the table besides just your sin. Okay? Be humbled. Second, this is, this is to those of you who have not yet experienced God's saving work through Jesus. And I kind of alluded to this earlier, but I hope you can see that the reality that God saves 100% by mercy and that you can't deserve and shouldn't try to deserve any saving from God. All you can do is just trust and receive. Okay? But I hope you see that this removes any excuse because you might say, you, know, you don't understand, you know, Pastor Steve, I've sinned for years. I've sinned against God. And you know what God says to that? Perfect. This will display the glory of my mercy when you return to me. Or you might have one or two particular sins that you are very grieved about. Just say, this, there's no way I could come back. There's no way God could save me. You know what God says about that? He says, exactly. This will display the glory of my mercy. Or you might think, you know, I'm just so unspiritual. There's nothing in my heart of interest. There's just no way in the world that God would accept me in this way. And God says, you come to me just as you are. Because when I change you, when I take out that heart of stone, when I give you a heart of flesh, when you find that you, you do love Jesus, like Paul's prayer alluded to earlier, when that happens, it'll display the glory of God's mercy. So see, just, just clear the deck. 
of any thoughts that you have to earn or deserve something here. And understand that removes all the excuses. There's not any person here who couldn't come to God through Jesus Christ right now, no matter what your past has been like, no matter how unspiritual you might feel. If you'll just turn from the other things you're trusting, put your trust in Jesus Christ, receive him as your Savior, receive him as your Lord, receive him as your treasure, you will be saved. There's nothing in the way. There's nothing in the way. As you are, you can do that. Third implication is to be sobered. This really, really hit me this week. All of us are going to display God's glory forever in one of two very different ways. If you have bent the knee before Jesus Christ in faith and received him in your life, then forever you will display the glory of his mercy. Forever God will hold you up before the redeemed and say, look at my goodness and mercy. And the redeemed will look and say, whoa! That's your destiny if you've bent the knee before Christ. You will display the glory of God's mercy. If you haven't bent the knee before Jesus Christ in humble faith, and if you persist in that, you will display God's glory, the glory of his justice, forever in hell. The the destinies couldn't be more different. Every single person here will be in one or the other. Feel that. This is huge. You're going to live forever. You will live for a hundred years from now. You're going to still be conscious and alive. And God is holding the door open, saying, look at what I've done in my son. Look at my love. Look at my mercy. I've displayed my love and my mercy on planet Earth before your eyes. You can read. It's there. It was real. Forgiveness is available. Transformation is available freely through faith alone. You just trust me, turn to me, trust me. And forever you will display the glory of God's mercy. But if you don't, this is what Jesus taught frequently, you will forever display the glory of God's justice. Have you genuinely bent the knee before Jesus Christ? Or do you just go to church every Sunday? It's a whole different thing, you know. You can go to church at least every Sunday and not be genuinely bending your knee before Jesus Christ. It's not even what doctrines you would agree to. Have you bent the knee in faith to Jesus Christ? Please, please, please don't miss this. I don't want anybody on my watch, Jerry Ship and I, elders here, home group leaders, leaders here, we don't want anybody... to be shocked that you aren't welcomed into the wedding feast. I want you to hear clearly what it takes to be welcomed into the wedding feast because it's forever. This morning, your destiny could be changed. Changed. One last implication. This is to those of you who are in the midst of trials right now. Things are looking dark, feeling hopeless. No good's going to come out of this. I want you to be hopeful. Here's why. 
Ephesians 2.7, I alluded to this earlier, Paul says that in the ages to come, God is going to show the riches of his kindness to you in Christ Jesus, which, which the way I picture that in my mind is forever he's going to hold you up before the redeemed, and all the redeemed will see your life. Even this trial you're going through right now, in fact, let's focus on that, especially this trial you're going through right now. There will be the time when in eternity God's going to hold you up in this trial you're going through right now. And all the redeemed will look at the goodness and the mercy and the favor of God that he worked in you and through you through that trial. All the redeemed will see that trial you're going through right now and what God was doing and what God did. And when they see what God was doing and what God did, his mercy, his goodness, his faithfulness, they will fall on their face and worship him for his goodness in that trial for you. You're not seeing that now, I get it. But that's the truth. Which is why you can be full of rock-solid hope, confidence. Great good's coming, great good's coming through this trial. Such good that the redeemed will fall on their faces before God forever and worship him for the goodness brought to us in it. So if you're going through a trial now, be hopeful. Be full of hope because great good is coming. Let's stand together. I want to pray these four over us. I pray, Lord, that you bring humility to those who think that there's some level of deservedness or worthiness that recommends them to you. And I pray for a fresh outpouring of complete humility that we are sinners saved by grace. I pray, Lord, that those here who are not yet trusting you would be encouraged that no amount of sin, length, or degree can disqualify you from repenting and being saved through faith in Christ. I pray that you'd remove excuses and the barriers and they would turn to you and come to you right now. I pray, Lord, that you'd, you'd sober all of us with the weightiness of eternity and that we would search our hearts and ask ourselves if we really are trusting you, living Jesus, or if we're just playing games. And I pray, Lord, that those that are in the thick of trials now would be filled with hope because you are and will work great good and mercy and favor to them in and through this trial. Fill them with hope now, I pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.